You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Today, with special guest host, Tamara Cherry. Hello, I am Tamara Cherry filling in for Evan this week. This is my final week filling in for Evan. It has been a pleasure and it will be a pleasure today. I'm sure of it because we have an awesome show coming your day. But first, we are going to the province that I called home for close to 15 years, Ontario, where the Lieutenant Governor Elizabeth Dowdswell opened the first session of the 43rd Parliament yesterday by delivering the speech from the throne. The people of Ontario rightly expect their government to work with others in common cause and in service of delivering real solutions. Now is the time for unity, she said, a unity of people and a unity of purpose. We are staring down another variant of COVID. We've been hit by sky-high inflation and global supply chains stressed by the pandemic continue to be crippled by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Add to that a labor shortage with the lowest rate of unemployment since the, the late 1980s and unprecedented spending throughout the pandemic, said Dowdswell. It's sometimes easy to consider these challenges in the abstract, but they have real and significant consequences on the lives of hardworking people and businesses. We are paying more, putting vacations on hold. A family meal for many people at a restaurant is feeling just a little bit out of reach, she said. The budget tabled by Ontario Finance Minister Peter Betham Falvey, after the throne speech, had a lot of spending for a conservative government. But of course, these are unprecedented times. A record $198.6 billion plan that spends 25% more than former Liberal Premier Kathleen Wynne's final budget in 2018. It includes a 5% increase in Ontario Disability Support Program payments, money for families of children in school for any pandemic-related education costs, Not quite sure why we would need that at this point. And an expanded tax credit for low-income individuals and families. You'll also get a staycation tax credit for vacationing in Ontario, increased home care spending, and grants aimed at keeping nursing students in this province. Oh, and a new provincial park location to be determined. But there was an elephant in the room. Ah, yes, that story we've been talking about for the last few weeks, about all the emergency rooms shutting down, about the nursing shortage of his budget, finance ministers, the finance minister said. This is a bill to keep costs down for the people of Ontario to invest in hospitals, our health care workforce and home care, and to continue to build subways, highways, housing and key infrastructure. But when Morella Fernandez on CTV News asked Dr. Michael Warner from Michael Guerin Hospital in Toronto whether he heard anything in the throne speech yesterday that he thought could help the overburdened healthcare system, he responded, Nothing. There was no plan, he said. And in listening to Sylvia Jones yesterday, it doesn't seem like she believes there's any type of crisis. Yeah, let's listen to what Health Minister Sylvia Jones told reporters this week. It disturbs me, as I'm sure it does many, when they find that their local hospital has to close for four hours, a shift, a period of time. But to suggest that it is in crisis is completely inappropriate. The disconnect between the politicians and the frontline doctors and nurses, Dr. Warner said, is highly concerning. 
When you tell people who are working the front lines that what they're experiencing isn't happening, that's gaslighting. And that really adds to the moral distress and burnout of the people who are working day in and day out to try and keep people healthy and keep people safe. To have a hospital like Montford in Ottawa with its emergency department closed for 12 hours on Saturday and 12 hours on Sunday. I think that's irresponsible. That should not be something that we accept. It should be a never event. And the government, they can't be blamed for all of this, but it is their job to get us through this. At the very least, Warner said the government should be acknowledging the situation we are in. They should repeal Bill 124, which subjects public sector workers in Ontario to a 1% pay increase, obviously far below inflation numbers these days, so that nurses can be paid more. So we can retain the nurses we have and attract nurses we don't have. The truth is there's very little COVID activity in hospitals right now. But the system is under way more stress than it ever has been in the summer. Like summer is usually a slower period of time. If we have any type of COVID bump in the fall, I think the system we brought to its knees. With that big budget tabled yesterday, journalist Colin DeMello pressed the finance minister. Surely, he said, there must be some money left for more health care spending. Record investments. That there's no money left in the table. Every cent has been spent. I just want to get that clear. Every cent in the health care budget has been spent. You know, I think what's important, I think the important thing is we're putting significant investments out there. My job is to make sure that those investments are transparent in this document, to make sure that we have adequate funding for our hospitals, for our long-term care facilities, for health human resources, for our schools. Here's Rachel Muir of the Ontario Nurses Association. So how long do we have to keep repeating this message? before it finally gets through. Honestly, I think we're going to have to keep repeating it until people start to die. And that is coming. And Doris Grinspun of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario. The competition is brutal whether either we will have the nurses here or they will go somewhere else. I get that the finance minister had the budget ready to go. I get that the province campaigned on certain things. But when emergency rooms are literally closing their doors... When, for the second time in two days, paramedics in the east end of the greater Toronto area in Durham region say they found themselves in a situation where they had zero ambulances available to answer calls. Code zero on Sunday night, code zero again on Monday afternoon. Surely this can be addressed in some way other than the health minister saying that there is no crisis. What is happening is not right. It is not okay. It needs to be addressed with more than combative language. And I know that the the, the provincial government would argue that combative language is coming from the other side as well. And of course it is. But there's no denying. there, There can be no denying that we are in a crisis right now. And of course, this is not only an Ontario issue. Emergency rooms have been shutting down right across the country, sometimes for hours at a time, sometimes for days at a time, hearing that there are ambulances unavailable east of Toronto is is unfathomable. It's like the stories we talk about when when you can't get a 911 operator on the line in your time of need, in your time of crisis. If there is nobody there to help you in your time of crisis, then our system is in a crisis. We're going to break this down after the break with a doctor who has been an emergency room doctor who has been going from hospital to hospital trying to help out her colleagues in in various emergency rooms so that those emergency rooms do not shut down. This is a doctor who is working her butt off 
and who has invited the Premier of Ontario to join her, just to shadow her on a shift. She says, I am a professional. There's not going to be any hate. I'm not here to argue with you. Just come and see what we are seeing. You've got doctors putting in IVs that nurses would usually be uh, putting in. You've got doctors cleaning up because there's nobody there to do it. Everybody's doing everybody else's job because this is a crisis situation and we need to do what needs to be done to keep these emergency rooms open so that if 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 you, our listener, are in a serious uh, collision on the road, you have somebody there who can help you. So that if your loved one has a heart attack and they go to the hospital, there's there there there's emergency crews there waiting to help you so that so that there is an ambulance available to answer your call to come your way. This is a serious situation. I look forward to getting into it uh, a little bit more with this doctor coming up after the break. And then we'll be turning the call lines over to you. What did you think about the Ontario budget? You don't need to live in Ontario to weigh in on this. Because as 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 one uh, pundit pointed out earlier this week, when we were talking, I believe we were talking about uh, Pierre Poilievre's uh, bid for the leadership of the con- federal conservative party, you know, Doug Ford in many ways is is writing the playbook for conservatism in this country right now. Are you happy with what you see in, in the Ontario budget that was tabled yesterday? Were you happy with what you heard in that throne speech? Are we paying enough attention to different issues? Do you, as a parent, do you feel like you need money to, to offset some of the costs of the pandemic and your kids going to school? Because I don't really, not when my kids are going to be going back to school full time. Anyway, lots to unpack in this show. And of course, it's Wednesday, so we've got the War Room political panel. If you want to listen back to the show or catch any interview you may have missed, listen to the Evan Solomon Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to the show. Keep up with all the latest news. I'm Tamara Cherry, filling in for Evan Solomon. Talk to you after the break. This is the Evan Solomon Show with special guest host Tamara Cherry on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. It disturbs me, as I'm sure it does many, when they find that their local hospital has to close for four hours, a shift, a period of time. But to suggest that it is in crisis is completely inappropriate. Well, something tells me that our next guest may disagree with Health Minister Sylvia Jones's comments from earlier this week when she was addressing reporters. Dr. Noor Khatib is a GTA, a, a Greater Toronto Area Emergency Room physician who is inviting Premier Doug Ford and Health Minister Sylvia Jones for a tour of an emergency department. And Dr. Khatib joins us on the line right now. Doctor, thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me, Tamara. Lord knows you're busy these days. My goodness, oh, yeah. you've been jumping You've been jumping from emergency room to emergency room, I understand, just trying to help your colleagues out so that they don't shut down. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Myself and many of my colleagues, uh, we've been getting emails saying that certain emergency departments are in critical uh, in a critical situation and are going to close and small communities. We're going to we're going to lose their emergency departments. So uh, we've responded to those emails and tried to help as best we can in the summer. Dr. Khatib, paint a picture for us. What are you seeing in these ERs? And and which and I guess we should we should talk about which your ERs were what locations we're talking about. 
So in in the, the greater Toronto area in general, you're seeing emergency departments with overflowing uh, waiting rooms. You're seeing patients waiting for much longer times than they usually do. And then when you actually get inside and you're seeing a doctor, all you see is, you know, a scarce number of nurses, maybe one or two nurses running around tirelessly trying to do the job of three or four. And this is not sustainable. It's not sustainable for the nurse working on that shift, and it's not sustainable for our healthcare system. The nursing shortage right now is absolutely unprecedented. The fact that we've got emergency departments closing uh, because of lack of staff is unprecedented. This is not normal. And I just want to emphasize that if our leaders were to come and see for themselves, come and look at an emergency department, see how things are not functioning the way they're supposed to, you'll realize right away that we are in crisis. Somebody on our text board uh, over the break sent in a message saying that we've been in crisis for decades. We just lived in denial. I know you just said this is unprecedented, but how is what we're seeing now different from the shortages that we had, say, a year ago, two years ago, three years ago? So we have had shortages a few years ago. Now they're just worse. And we have been sounding the alarms. We've just been unhurt. Um, there is a significant doctor shortage in Ontario, uh, an emergency doctor sh- shortage, about 15,000. And in terms of nurses, that's even more significant. And we're seeing it more and more now when we see our nursing colleagues leave in droves. And can you blame them? They're working in a profession where they feel n- not respected. There's Bill 124 capping their wages. And we just, right now, my call is for the government. You know, we, we are in this together. We need the government now more than ever. We have a chance to try to save what's left of our healthcare system if we just start by recognizing that it is a crisis. And we can try to save our patients by making the next right decision, the next right step. What, it, what does it make, like, what sort of emotions does it stir up for you when you hear the clip that, that we just played uh, before coming to you in which the health minister, Sylvia Jones, is saying that to suggest that, that this is in crisis is completely inappropriate? I mean, frontline workers unanimously say that we are in a very dire situation. So I, I mean, when frontline workers are all kind of... Um, you know, all saying this and, and and worrying about what's about to happen in the fall and winter, I think it's time to, to listen and I think it's time to visit. I think it's time to come and visit the emergency departments in Toronto and or really any across the across Ontario and see for yourselves that this is not appropriate this is not adequate health care. What do you think would surprise the most if, if they were to come and shadow you for a day? I think they'll be surprised at uh, how the waiting rooms are bursting at the seams. They'll be surprised at how little staff are around. And, um, you know, if they visit for, if they come and take a look for two or three days, they'll see the same patients waiting in the hallway for a bed upstairs on the floor. So when I go to a shift, um, and I have to, if I have a few shifts in a row, I will see the same patients that I admitted a few days ago still waiting for a bed, and they're in the hallway. Mm. So we're back to hallway medicine. We're back to um, a staffing shortage that is just incredible. And it's just, it's very sad to see. People are, you know, driving to their shifts thinking, how short are we going to be today? It's not, it's not about, you know, am I going to have a good day or bad day? We know it's going to be a bad day because of how short we're going to be, but how bad is it? 
Oh gosh. You know, you just mentioning that hallway medicine, I was thinking this, this was a headline, you know, this has been years ago, this headline, it, it would have been a big news story that somebody's waiting in a hallway for three days. But the fact that this is just the norm is absolutely, it's, it, it seems absolutely absurd. It's totally bonkers. Just, just hammer that home for us. If you can, Dr. Khatib, what does that do for the, do to the patient? What is the patient experience right now going into emergency rooms when they're in need? Because, you know, I, I get that you need to prioritize people. There might be somebody who's coming in on a stretcher, you know, and, and paramedics are pounding their chest. And then there's somebody else who's got chronic pain or, or what have you, what is the experience for these patients who are going in and they feel like they've got nowhere else to turn? They're frustrated. These patients are frustrated. They're frustrated that they're waiting so long. They're frustrated at our healthcare system. And we're encouraging them to please reach out to the government and let them know about your frustrations. Let them know that this is unacceptable. I was working in a rural site um, that was at risk of closure. And there was a gentleman who drove a few hours to get to me because his eMERGE was closed. And he went to a pharmacy to, to, to ask what to do about his medical condition. And the pharmacist was basically said, seek medical attention immediately. So he ended up driving all the way to the eMERGE that I was in, and that was at risk of closure. So this is frustrating for, for, for the entire com- that entire community. What, what's some, someone with chest pain or someone, um, someone having a stroke, what are they going to do in that community when their eMERGEs are closed? Mm-hmm. And when yeah, you're, hear- you're describing somebody with chest pain driving... Or I, I don't know if that was the emergency that that gentleman was facing, but this is a person that drove three hours because their emergency room was closed. Where would this person have gone next, do you think, had that emergency room been closed? They would have to drive more, uh, longer to another rural site. Um, and it's, it's, it's unfortunate. And I, I mean, I am, I, I'm mentioning rural sites, but you've heard on the news about how places in downtown Toronto are closing sections of their eMERGE due to these severe staff shortages. And this is unprecedented. This is not the norm. This is what I call a healthcare crisis. And I, I, I need, like, we need this to be acknowledged so that we can move forward with a plan. Do you worry that members of the public are being, have been desensitized to the term healthcare crisis, just given the last two and a half years through the pandemic? We've been hearing for months and months and months that the system is, is, has, is being brought to its knees. Uh, like how how do we how do we change people's mindsets to to the point that no this is we need to be paying attention right now. I mean, all we can do is raise awareness that this is not normal, that this is different from before, and that's what we've been trying to do. Is myself and my colleagues is to let patients know those who are frustrated or those who are unhappy with how long they've waited. We let them know, please reach out to your government, reach out and let them know that this is not normal and this is not acceptable healthcare. What do you think when you consider another potential COVID wave in the fall? I I don't even know what to tell you. It's uh, I I'm I fear for the fall. I fear for the winter. Um, this is supposed to be our slow season. This like summers are supposedly our slow season, but it has not been the way. The volumes have been quite high. And aside from the volumes, we don't have the staff to take care of these volumes. So we're all kind of scrambling and trying to keep things working and this is all on the backs of tired nurses and healthcare workers Mm -hmm. that have just been exhausted for years now. Mm -hmm. Dr. Noor Khatib, uh, GTA emergency room physician working all over the place not just in the GTA these days. Thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, Best of luck to you and, and your colleagues. Thank you so much. Take care.
I, I want to turn this over to you now, the listener. Give us a call, 1-855-633-1010. Is this something you're concerned about? I think you should be. Not just from what I've been following in the news, but I've got friends and family who work in healthcare, and I'm hearing the same stories over and over. 1-855-633-1010. What did you think of the throne speech in Ontario yesterday? It doesn't matter if you live in Ontario or outside of Ontario. What do you think of the money, the, the resources being put towards healthcare? You can also send me a text message at 71010. We'll get to your calls after the break. I'm Tamara Cherry in Kevin Solomon. Evan Solomon is away. Sitting in, here's Tamara Cherry on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. And oh boy, there are a lot of people upset with the Ontario government over this healthcare issue, at least on the text board and from what I can see in all the calls that are streaming in. But I do want to get ahead of something because there are some text messages coming in, as they always do when we talk about this, saying, why don't you just hire back? The unvaccinated nurses, that would solve this problem. No, it wouldn't. No, it wouldn't. The Ontario Nurses Union has said, you know, we don't want you to reinstate these nurses because that will make more people leave. They will feel unsafe in their workplace. I also want to say for anybody that's thinking about calling in and saying, well, there's tens of thousands of nurses that could be working in Ontario if they were just allowed to come back as unvaccinated nurses. That is not true. That is a conspiracy theory. The reality is it is a very, very small percentage of employees who are not working because they are unvaccinated. Uh, for example, Toronto's Hospital for Sick Children uh, said that that almost 100% of their staff have been fully vaccinated. Um, when you go to Michael Guerin Hospital, uh, they, they acknowledge the current staffing pressures hospitals are facing, but said they have no plans to change their stance on, on mandatory vaccination. University Health Network says that up to 1% of the workforce, 153 of their 17,000 500 employees do not comply with their policy. So I could go on and on. I'm reading from a CTV News uh, Toronto story from a couple of days ago, but please just please, please just don't call in with uh, false numbers and, and conspiracy theories. Let's go to the phone lines because they are jammed. Deborah, you're calling from Whitney, uh, Whitby. Sorry. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on the healthcare? What I would agree is a crisis these days. Well, I see the healthcare system as a bridge that was built for a horse and buggy. You know, basic healthcare. Mm-hmm. You get sick, you get injured, you know, you have a baby. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to put transport trucks across it. Heart-lung uh, uh, bypass, uh, cancer treatments, all of these major, major, heavy, expensive things. You cannot patch this bridge. It needs to be dismantled and completely redesigned and rebuilt. And to have the kind of health care that we all want is going to mean much, much, much higher taxes. And do we really want to pay those taxes? That's the question. We all want everything, but do we really want to pay for it? Would you be willing to pay for it, Deborah? I think that there's a better model out there. I think that there's uh, some uh, privatization that could happen to make it more streamlined. I think there's, we've, we've got to stop looking at it as a sacred cow and really disassemble it and go, what is the best solution as opposed to continually trying to patch it and then complain about it? All right, Deborah and Whitby, thanks for your call. Let's go to Graham in Toronto. Graham, go ahead. I think uh, Deborah needs some psychiatric help. We are, uh, we are paying an outrageous amount of uh, tax 
and uh, Ford uh, cut spending in health care during the pandemic by $1.0 billion, his own admission. I have been a practitioner for 27 years. What your, your former, uh, the individual you interviewed, the doctor, I only caught it near the end. She is 100% right. Dr. Khatib? In what she's saying. I have colleagues from around the globe saying, what is wrong with you people? Why are you tolerating this? I want to make a plea to all the listeners. Our apathy needs to end. You need to reach out. This is going to affect you, one of your family members, a loved one, um, in some way, shape, or form. It's time to take action. Um, and uh, we, we have to demand more. Graham, Graham, did, did we just lose Graham? Graham, are you still on the line? I am. I you am. Might have just, oh, you are. Okay, okay. I just wanted to say, you know, it's interesting to hear your comment uh, regarding your colleagues from around the globe, because the Ontario government would argue that what we're facing is not unique. This is some. This is something that um, healthcare providers around the world are 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 facing. But you're saying that that this is unique. Oh, absolutely. Uh, look, look, I mean, if you're earning over $100,000 in this province, you're paying all in about 63.5% tax. I work with the OMA. I mean, I know the numbers forwards and backwards. Um, those other organizations, is there a shortage globally? Airlines, healthcare, yes, yes, and yes. But that's not the issue right now. Uh, it is, again, it started with the McGuinty government, where uh, practitioners at sick kids, which are all pretty much highly specialized, had to go and reapply for our jobs. This falls on you, me, and all the other listeners right now, and the balance of our population. In New Zealand, th- th- this nonsense, there's a motion right now, it's called we're not paying uh, for health care, and they're not paying for um, uh, utilities, because the prices have all gone up so dramatically. So we have enough money. We didn't even spend $2 billion. We have old systems in our hospitals that are antiquated, lousy. We pay lousy. Nobody wants to be. I was a GP. I became a plastic surgeon, which I didn't really want to do. But economically, I really didn't have a choice. So where does it stop? The government's ruining all of this for all of us, simply put. Graham, thanks for the great call. Let's go to Tim in Cambridge. Tim, go ahead. Sure. Yeah, my, my comment is, is like for them to say that there's no crisis is absolutely crazy. And the reason I say this is my niece is in nursing school. And I'm not talking about emergency uh, nursing. I'm talking about just the regular hospital nurses. She's had her first year of school, and sometimes when she comes in for her shift, she is the only one on her floor. It, it, this, As a student. Unbelievable. Yeah, it's unbelievable. She's had one year of schooling, and she's the only nurse on her floor. This is a big city hospital. And, and I said, well, where are they? She said, they quit. They just quit. They were asking them to work 12 hours, 16 hours a day, you know, and mm-hmm. they just can't handle it anymore. It's pathetic. How, is your niece considering, you know, leaving the profession, or how, how is she feeling about the no, future she, of her career? she loves it. You know, she loves it. She's, she's got a servant's heart, and that's what she wants to do. Mm. But uh, she said it's, it's really bad. Yeah, you must worry really about bad. her burning out. Thank, thanks, Tim, for your call. Joan in Brampton. No uh, I understand you're a registered nurse, Joan. Joan, do we have you? Okay, let, I, we might get Joan back. Anna, you're in Toronto. What are you What are you uh, experiencing these days? I understand you're a dialysis patient. 
Yes, and my frequency of treatment has been cut from five to three because of lack of staff. I had to take half a day off yesterday. I was just, I couldn't work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, so I, I might face, you know, being a taxpayer to being somebody who is on disability because I cannot manage on three times a week. I Luckily, I was able to get my frequency back up, but I know somebody just down the street, a fellow patient, he's been cut. So this is not just me. This is what's happening. We're not getting life-sustaining treatment as fast, uh, as frequent as we need just to stay somewhat healthy or be um, a contributor to taxpayers. How much is that going to cost beyond the, the the health crisis. This is what we're after. And I, I'm very sorry to hear about that and best of luck to you. We do have Joan on the line. Joan, we have uh, less than a minute here. Go ahead. Okay, so I just want to say this quickly. First of all, I don't agree with the minister. I worked five, 12, 12 hour shift. I'm off today and I'm back tomorrow for another overtime. That just gives you an idea what it's like. I work in women's and children program. We don't need to have so many clinical leaders that are actually nurses that can actually go on the floor and work and so many managers. For example, quickly, is we have one program, but we have three managers and we have three CPLs, clinical practice leaders. Why can't those, uh, in the middle of this crisis, those practice leaders should be able to go on the floor, take patient loads, go to war, help out until we get over this crisis. So somebody needs to address it, but I haven't heard anybody address that. Joan, thank you very much for your call. I, I gotta say, every single one of the people who called in today, I feel like I could have talked to you for an hour about this issue. And and I, I can only imagine that there are so many more people in line who wanted to have their say. Thank you to everybody who weighed in on this. Hopefully the powers that be are listening. And yeah, you know what? Call me bias, call me whatever you want. I do believe we're in crisis. I've seen it in my own family, whether it's my family members who are working in the healthcare unit or my family members who have not been able to access the care they need at the time that they need or should have it because of these shortages. So we need to be doing better. We have a really interesting segment coming up after the break. Uh, Stay tuned. I'm Tamara Cherry in for Evan Solomon. You're listening to The Evan Solomon Show. Filling in for Evan, it's Tamara Cherry on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Well, as the Pope prepared for his visit to Canada to face members of our Indigenous communities over the church's involvement in the atrocities of residential schools, a researcher from Canada was in Rome in the former residence of an Italian nobleman exploring the private records of a religious order that operated 48 residential schools, among them the Maryville Indian Residential School at Cowessis First Nation in Saskatchewan and the Kamloops Indian Residential School in British Columbia, where the discoveries last year of unmarked graves spurred calls for justice and transparency. Joining us now to talk about what he found searching through the archives of the Missionary Oblates of Mary Immaculate is Raymond Frogner. He's the head archivist for the Winnipeg-based National Center for Truth and Reconciliation. Raymond, thanks so much for taking the time today. Thank you for having me. 
So Raymond, first, we aren't just talking about any museum, like a museum where just anyone can walk in and look at these materials. These are private archives that, from what I understand, very few people are allowed to explore. How did you arrive there? Uh, well, you're very right. This is a private archive, and um, the, the Oblates uh, have exclusive ownership and control over the records that are in there. Um, it's been a process of discussion and dialogue uh, across uh, First Nations communities. Um, and, and and the Oblate order themselves. Uh, and I think uh, over time, as the conversations expanded, it became quite clear that um, there was a moral imperative for the Oblates to open up their records and have a transparent and accountable uh, evidence of the, the relationship between the Oblate order and the residential school system, its history and legacy in Canada. So I understand, Raymond, that you spent five days there in Rome searching through these archives before we get to what you found because it is significant just just describe the scene for us tell tell us what this place was like what were you surrounded by oh well it is a it is a sort of a kind of a almost like a compound it's next to the the philippine embassy in a district of rome uh and as you said it was the former um the former resident of of an italian nobleman so it has it does have a certain particular um sort of uh uh exquisiteness to it um when even in the reading room uh, i had a, a statue of the virgin mary standing just behind the desk where i was working um there was a mosaic of uh of the or the order's founder um on a on a great wall with, next to standing next to the pope um and there was all kinds of catholic iconography surrounding me in the reading room itself as well as different um different uh areas of the of the archive and the building itself uh, that were reserved for for prayer um, there was a chapel. It was it was unlike any other archive I've ever seen in my life. And and what sort of questions did you go there with that you were hoping to answer? Well, first and foremost, we're concerned with um, discovering and and recording the history of, of indigenous communities and their experiences with the residential school system. Um, that um, the system is a as a, a program of assimilation for those communities and. Uh, to to assist in uh, communities to self-determine and reassert our sovereignty as independent um, communities and nations. And, um, so that, first and foremost, is what I was looking for. Uh, so I did go there uh, with the hope of perhaps finding some evidence of lost children, um, uh, but there was no guarantee, uh, and I, I was unable to find a tremendous amount, um, but uh, I, I gather you're going to ask me about this anyways, but... Mm-hmm. Um, that was particularly administrative archives that uh, is concerned with missionary organizations and, and activities of others around the world. We're speaking with Raymond Frogner. He's the head archivist for the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation in Winnipeg. And he spent five days searching through archives of a religious order in Rome last month. Tell us what you found, Raymond. Uh, well, the, the, the archives themselves, are, as, as I just mentioned, are private. Um, so one thing that I found that was quite surprising uh, was that nothing is digitized whatsoever. Uh, so everything that I was able to uh, request or, or research was based on um, some very uh, high-level finding aids. There was no item-level file lists or descriptions of the holdings. Um, so basically, I came with a I came with my own research and asked uh, based on my research if they had any records concerning a particular person, a particular school. Uh, an, an activity or event that occurred. Uh, and so that's 
how I consulted the archive um, more than um, their finding aids, which which even even those seem to be typed on a typewriter. Uh, they, they were very um, non-digital environment. Mm. But I think that serves their purpose. It's it's a private archive. It's not meant to be um, providing public access. Um, the archive itself is divided into five different sections or series. There was a manuscript section, an administrative section, uh, photographs, uh, personnel files, and what we call provinces, which are areas of the various missions. Um, tell, tell us about the photographs that you found, because I understand that there were 20 drawers of photos and, and three of those contain images of the Order's missions in Canada. That must have been fascinating for you. So tell me about that. Yes, it was amazing. It, it was quite a, quite a surprise. Because as I went through the photographs, uh, they were just organized by country. <clears throat> as I said, these are this is a missionary organization that operates around the world. And as you just noted, there was only three um, sighting drawers that actually concerned uh, missions in Canada. But as I started looking through those drawers, I noticed that um, approximately 700 to 1,000 <clears throat> of those images, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, concerned uh, residential schools and the activities of uh, the Oblate missions relating to those schools. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> But what was particularly interesting was uh, in the, on the back as of, of, of many, if not all of the photographs, was a, hand, a brief handwritten description. Um, so many of these photographs are of children. Um, there's the, the classic school shot of all the children lined up, but then others um, showing children in various school activities. And uh, what I suspect and what, I, um, what I'm quite sure of is because this is the early 20th century, this is, uh, these could potentially be photographs of children um, who have been identified as have been being lost as, at these schools. So mm -hmm. this is one more piece of information um, concerning the final destiny of lost children. Um, and it was interesting because when I spoke with the, the head archivist, archivist, they were quite unaware of what they held there. Um, and as I said, you know, the archives is concerned with missions around the world. So uh, they weren't, um, you know, they weren't well informed about the, the concept of residential schools and experience of Indigenous peoples there. So we had some very uh, um, intense conversations about that. And, and at the end of the day, my recommendation was, um, if not replevant, return those photos to the communities, at the very least, to digitize the records of the photographs and make them available to communities so that those communities can identify the children that are in those photos. I have no doubt if the communities had the opportunity to, to view the photos, that the those children could be identified because at the moment they aren't incredible uh raymond frogner head archivist of the winnipeg-based national center for truth and reconciliation thank you so much for sharing a little bit of your five-day journey through those archives with us i feel like i could talk to you for hours but we're coming up against the brink so thank you very much raymond have a great day thank you so of course, yeah, the, there's very there was very quick work being done to digitize these photos and uh, and and get them get them into the hands of of people right here in Canada who can hopefully identify uh, some of their loved ones may, who may have been in in some of those unmarked graves that we were uh, you know talking about so much, especially last year at Cowasis and uh, over in Kamloops. Uh, so thank you again, Raymond. Coming up after the break, it is Wednesday, which means it is time for the war room. The time of the week that we convene our political panel to discuss all the big stories of the week. And dare I say, there are many interesting stories to discuss. I'm Tamara Cherry filling in for Evan Solomon.
You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Today, with special guest host, Tamara Cherry. It is time for the segment, one of the segments that I look most forward to when I am filling in for Evan Solomon. It is Wednesday. That means it is time to convene the great political minds of our country for the war room. Let me be perfectly clear. Putting out misinformation. And we hear that. Misleading politics. What's really important here. Spreading it online. Unequivocally. The War Room. The War Room. And joining us today, CTV political analyst and former NDP leader, Thomas Mulcair. How are you, Mr. Mulcair? Very well. Good to be back with you, Tamara. Also on the line, Chairman of Summa Strategies and Managing Director of Abacus Data, Tim Powers. Hello, sir. I think we're still waiting for Tim. And Laura D'Angelo, Vice President, National Strategy and Public Affairs at Enterprise Canada. How are you, Ms. D'Angelo? I'm doing great. Wonderful. So I understand we've got Tim on the line. Welcome to the welcome to the party, Tim. Let's jump right into it. Okay, so in a Toronto Star column published Monday, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh told the stars Althea Raj that if the new dental program for low-income children under 12 and remember, this is the centerpiece of the NDP Liberal Supply and Confidence Agreement, is not implemented by year's end, he'll walk away from the deal, telling Raj, quote, I made it really clear to the Prime Minister directly that this has to happen. There's just no option for them. This has to happen. The deal stands on this. Well, lo and behold, Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland said yesterday that the government is working hard to meet its end-of-year deadline to deliver dental care coverage to kids, but she noted this while speaking at a press conference yesterday. Delivering new services to Canadians is complicated, and I think Canadians understand that. We are working very, very hard on dental care. It's complicated. It's complicated. We made this coalition that's not a coalition, but it's complicated. Is that going to fly, Tom Mulcair with Jagmeet Singh? Uh, no, it's not going to fly. I don't know if it's going to fly with Singh because I was uh, reading with great interest what his health critic, Don Davies, said. And this was one of those uh, phrases for the ages. Uh, we've identified several ways to ensure that the target groups can access dental care on the identified timelines. I love that sort of gobbledygook. Look, it's quite clear when you read what's coming out of Duclos' office, the federal health minister, what uh, was just said in, in the clip that we were provided from Christia Freeland, that this thing's not ready. Who knew? You know, that the gang that brought you the Phoenix pay system, the inability to procure anything from a fighter jet to, uh, to a, a warship, uh, who have the worst airport record for, you know, for delays and canceled flights in the world. That's not me saying that. That's CNN that went around the world and came up with Pearson Airport. Then you hear them say, who knew it's complicated to put into place a new social program? This just in. Anybody who's ever been in public administration knows it can be complicated. But I'll tell you right now, tomorrow, I've seen really complicated programs put in place in the timelines that we're looking at. It's just that they're not very good. This is a government that is guilty of serial incompetence in so many files. And this doesn't come as a surprise to anybody that's ever watched this liberal government try to get anything done. But now Mr. Singh is going to have a lot of egg on his face because it's obvious that the program that he signed for is not going to be available in December as promised. 
Laura D'Angelo, how do you think, uh, how do you expect the NDP leader, Mr. Singh, to proceed when this inevitably is not available come the end of the year? So I don't think it's inevitable that it's not going to be available come the end of the year. And I think that Mr. Singh is doing what he should be doing right now, frankly. He's reassuring new Democrats that he's committed to defending his party's priorities. I don't think any liberal has an issue with that. He was criticized for this deal in the first place. Of course, he's trying to hold the government's feet to the fire. But I also think that Minister Freeland and Minister Duclos have been very clear that this program is going to be delivered. The health critic, Don Davies, is working very hard with them to do that. And I think that we have to we have to listen to that. Of course, it's complicated. Of course, we wanted to move faster. We all want to provide services for the most vulnerable people in Canada. But this government has a track record for delivering for children and families. The child care agreements are signed. The CCB lifted 780,000 children and teenagers out of poverty. I don't think that's a failing record. They've shown their commitment, and I think that's going to continue. But, but Laura, they've had their, their own commitments that have been their own priorities, but this arguably was not a priority for the Liberal government until the NDP told them, if you want us on board, it has to be a priority. So do you think that they'd be dealing with it in the same way as, as things that they campaigned on with, with, on their own platform? I do think they will. I think that this government is committed to delivering services and delivering programs for the most vulnerable. This is an important one. I don't I don't think that's partisan. I think that as Canadians, we want to provide and support everybody. So I do actually think they're committed to this. I think, you know, it's, it's also politics. I think they're committed to this because they want to make sure that they have a successful parliament for the next session. And they know that this is a big factor there. Tim Powers, I mean, we've heard both sides of the argument now with Tom and, and Laura. Where do you land on this one? It's so complicated, Tamara. It's so complicated. <laughs> I mean, it's just so complicated. <laughs> you know, I hear the Deputy Prime Minister say that, and uh, Tom and Laura will probably recognize this as well. It reminds me of that commercial when Stefan Dion said it was difficult to make priorities. If Chrystia Freeland wants to be the Prime Minister, she's got up her comms game first and foremost, starting with it's complicated in the tone in which it was delivered was not helpful. Anyway, that little rant aside, I look, I, I, Tom knows better than we do what's going on in the NDP, but I think he's got, I think the NDP is very um, restive at the moment, and Mr. Singh is trying to respond to that. I I liken it to the speed and success Mr. Layton had years ago with Mr. Martin when he was able to do a deal with a prime minister that needed the support more urgently, and he got something done, and that happened more quickly. Maybe Mr. Singh is being compared to this in his own ranks, and, uh, and it's not playing out well. Certainly I have to imagine NDP members are not not happy with Singh's support right now of the Liberals, particularly given the the, the failures that Tom uh, well articulated on the Liberal front right now. So yes, as Laura said, there's some politics in all of this. I don't know whether they'll make the deadline or not, uh, but certainly Mr. Singh has to say something about it, uh, or or he will look even more limp-fisted than some in his own party may view him to be at the moment. Yeah, and, and and Tom, as as Tim just said, and as you said earlier, he you know, Jugme Singh is going to have egg on his face if he doesn't do something come the end of the year if this deal is not in place. Do you imagine that you know if if behind the scenes he's being told, look, we need two, three, four, five, six more months to get this in place? Is there something else he could put on the table to say, okay, then I want this too, and and to bring then to to the public to say this is what we're also getting out of this? 
what people are doing is going through Mr. Singh's previous statements. It mm-hmm. was the number one argument that he used when he tried to justify the deal. You can just imagine being an NDP candidate, you know, a returning MP trying to get reelected or a new candidate going door to door in the next election saying, you know, don't vote for those liberals. They're a bunch of scoundrels. We're the real deal. First question is, well, if they're so bad, why did you support them for three years? And second of all, why didn't you ask for something like the respect for Canada's obligations under the Paris Accord on climate change? And Mr. Trudeau immediately approved a massive offshore oil project. And Mr. Gilbo, his environment minister, has just announced that the 2030 targets that they said were set in stone, that they're not even on the table anymore. That was what Gilbo said a couple of weeks ago. So the average progressive looking at this stuff is saying, Why did you make this deal in return for what? So they're going to try to rationalize it. They're going to say, well, we've identified this. And I'm sensitive. Uh, Laura Laura D'Angelo's point earlier on when she was saying, look, you know, they've done other things to help people on the lowest rung of the social economic ladder. Laura's right. But this is not about that. This is about this specific program that they promised. And it goes to a question of government competence. Why do they seem to always be unable to just do the work of government? And that's because nobody's minding the store. They're great at communications, but they don't know how to get stuff done. Fascinating stuff. We're going to have a lot more coming up from in the war room after the break. We've got Tom Mulcair, Tim Powers, Laura D'Angelo on the panel today. Lots of other interesting stuff to discuss, starting with, you know, some of his many interesting calls we got in reaction to Ontario's budget and throne speech yesterday. I'm Tamara Cherry, filling in for Evan Solomon on The Evan Solomon Show. And... So get that 649 feeling. Buy your ticket today to feel the anticipation that comes with a chance to win a jackpot of an estimated $5 million, plus the guaranteed $1 million prize. You're listening to The Evan Solomon Show. Filling in for Evan, it's Tamara Cherry on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. And it is Wednesday, which means we've got the war room happening now. Joining the the political panel this week is Tom Mulcair, CTV political analyst and former NDP leader, Tim Powers, chairman of SUMA Strategies and managing director of Abacus Data, and Laura D'Angelo, vice president of national strategy and public affairs at Enterprise Canada. All right, everybody, the phone lines absolutely lit up, as did the text board earlier in the show when we started talking about Ontario's throne speech yesterday and the finance minister's budget that was tabled. People are not happy with the Ontario government, given what is happening in the healthcare system right now. Laura, I want to go to you first. You know, um, I, I was actually I got to say I was surprised. I was I was expecting more of a mix uh, from our listeners and, and our texters. But across the board, everybody was angry. I mean, I don't I don't know that I'm surprised by that. All we hear about in the news right now is that. You know, mothers are having to use their own personal prescription supply to while their child was in the hospital, that I'm, ERs are closed everywhere. I I don't surprise I'm not surprised that the fury is at the healthcare system and and you know, at Premier Ford not fixing it. Tim, uh, do you think that Premier Ford uh and, and his health minister Sylvia Jones will change course at some point in the coming days? 
You're there, because I should I should point out that Sylvia yep. Jones said earlier this week this is that it, it's it's absurd. Basically, I'm paraphrasing to call this a crisis. What we're in right now. Well, that's kind of dumb. That's right up there with the Krishia Freeland comments. But uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't know why you quite make that comment. But it's, it's complicated, Tim. It's, it's complicated. complicated. A crisis is complicated, but you know what? Uh, as they say about a crisis, you shouldn't waste a good one. Um, and exactly. look. Uh, it is good. Tamara, I would say this. It is a great thing that your text board is lighting up and people are angry because there isn't one easy solution here. And at the re- the risk of repeating myself from last weekend, until everybody recognizes that the system that we have now is broken significantly and is prepared to do the big work of changing it and making it, you know, devising it to be more effective, uh, nobody's going to win. No premier in this country right now, I think, is getting any love and affection from his or her electorate uh, over the state of health care in their respective provinces. Because from my province in Newfoundland and Labrador to B.C., it's all broken. And money alone is not going to fix it. So let's hope this anger that citizens rightly have forces politicians to do something more than just say we need more money from the federal government to fix it, because that alone is not going to do it. Yeah. And, you know, Tom, it's interesting to to hear Tim there talking about all the other provinces going through this, because I think a lot of people say that, um, you know, especially other conservative governments, they look to Doug Ford as sort of writing the playbook for how things are done. And he doesn't look he doesn't seem to be looking very good right now. What are you what are your thoughts on this? Two different things. And I'm going to steal a page from uh, Tim's playbook because he often talks about the political communication side. I think that they made a big mistake when Doug Ford was pushed to the microphones last week and he essentially said this, you're getting all the health care you need. And that was the wrong answer. The, the Doug Ford who got reelected was a Doug Ford who showed that he understands people, that he was empathetic, that he gets this stuff. Where Tim is right, and I agree with him, if you look in Quebec, we're, you know, regional hospitals shutting down their emergencies over the weekend. The shortage of nurses and doctors isn't specific to Ontario, but the Quebec government pushes a decent communicator out there. Our health minister is a top-notch communicator. He says we're doing this and that and the other thing. One thing I liked in the response was the new health minister in Ontario coming forward last week and saying that she had just sent directives to the colleges of nurses and physicians Mm -hmm. to try to knock down unnecessary barriers to the arrival and accreditation of foreign trained graduates. Now, that's a very good idea. It's a long overdue thing, but it requires a bit of pressure to get it done because there are, of course, lots of strong lobbyists pushing back the other way. So using, again, to Tim's point, this crisis and not wasting it can include coming to an agreement with a lot of those professions, knocking down some of those barriers. And I would add the barriers between professions and their scope of practice to make the whole thing more efficient. That's what this is about, getting care to Canadians, and that's what they deserve. And that's what Mr. Ford didn't understand in the first answer he gave, and it was unfortunate because he he lit this brush fire under himself because of that comment. Yeah, I, I, I want to switch um, gears just a little bit here, a topic that we've discussed many times before, but always new stuff coming forward. And that is a new poll that has found that Pierre Poilievre, while he may be the pre- preferred uh, candidate for the leadership race at the Conservative Party of Canada among conservatives, uh, this new poll found that Sheree is favored by Canadians. Uh, Tim, I want to go to you on this first. Does this matter to Poilievre at this point? Do you think he cares? Uh, no, 
<laughs> I don't think he does at this point, but he's going to have to pay attention to it at some point and dig down and figure out why that is beyond the brand name of, of Jean Charest. He, you know, this has been Mr. Charest's key attack against Mr. Polyev during the campaign. It has been his key rallying cry. So what Pierre is going to have to do, should he win on September 10th, which seems like an inevitability, is is first of all, recognize that both Sheree and this guy, Patrick Brown, you may have heard of him, he was around for a little while. The people that they have got to support the Conservative Party probably are in that in that group, that cohort that say they would like to see a leader other than Pierre Polyev. He's got to figure out how to keep them engaged in the Conservative Party and figure out how to connect with Canadians who don't have him held in the same regard as they do, say, Jean Charest, uh, but not something he's going to obsess about over the next five weeks. Laura, what, what are your thoughts on this this poll? Does it matter for Poiliev at this point, or is he just thinking about right now? I don't think it matters for Poiliev at this point. Um, but to Tim's point, he is going to have to sort out this problem because it's a problem for him in the long term. Um, you know, the four of us may be familiar with Poiliev, but the average Canadian isn't, and it seems to be that the more they see of him, the less they like him. Um, I don't know if he continues on the with the rhetoric he's got. I don't think that changes. And so he is going to have to find a way to um, either walk back some of his rhetoric, which I'm not sure he can, or appeal to the you know average centrist Canadian and right-of-center Canadian. Tom, what, what is the way forward for, for Pierre in this, if, pre- presuming that he is the next leader of the Conservative Party? party. I like Laura's analysis in the sense that Pierre Poiliev loves being that strident guy. Mm. But it's interesting. We were just talking a minute ago about the professions. Well, he had to walk back a statement he had made because he said the feds were going to take care of that. Of course, it's provincial jurisdiction. So he often talks about gatekeepers. He has gatekeepers. <laughs> They're his handlers. And they wa- they made sure that before he did the French debate, he changed his tune on that one. I think he's capable of doing that. He is communicating to his base, including the harder right base that went to Maxime Bernier, saying, I will never do like O'Toole and Scheer. You'll never have to worry about me on climate change and a carbon tax and guns. I'm going to be your guy. He's, he's, he's going to succeed in that. Now he's got to talk to other Canadians and say, I'm that guy for the Conservatives, but I can also be the Prime Minister of all Canadians. That's his big challenge, because Canadians right now are skeptical. I watched his behavior when he was a minister, because I was right there in front of him. His behavior as a minister in Stephen Harper's government, he was the most strident. He brought in a so-called electoral reform Mm -hmm. that was so toxic that even Harper had to back away from it. So this guy's got a lot to learn, but I do believe he is learning. So we'll see whether he's capable of completing the, the play. You know what? Perhaps what we will see is uh, Pierre Poilievre will be named the next leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, and then he'll step before the microphones in his first address to all Canadians as the the Conservative leader and say, guys, it's complicated. Okay, we got to just change course a little bit. It's a little bit complicated. That does it for the War Room uh, this week. Big thanks to our panelists, Tom Mulcair, CTV political analyst and former NDP leader, as well as Tim Powers, chairman of Summa Strategies and managing director of Abacus Data, and Laura D'Angelo, vice president of National Strategy and Public Affairs at Enterprise Canada. Thank you very much. It was a wonderful War Room. Coming up after the break, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. It's a big story you're not going to want to miss. Tamara Cherry and Evan Solomon.
You're listening to The Evan Solomon Show. Filling in for Evan, it's Tamara Cherry on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Thank you for listening. I am uh, very much looking forward to this next conversation. It is a story that I, as well as people right across this country, have have, have been following uh, very closely in in recent days and recent weeks. Uh, Dawn Walker, of course, is the 48-year-old woman who was the subject of an extensive missing person search after she disappeared with her son about two weeks ago. She was found and arrested in Oregon City on Friday and has been detained in the U.S. ever since. Uh, we now have on the line a friend of Don Walker. Her name is Eleanor Sunchild. She is a Cree lawyer in Saskatchewan, and she joins us now. Eleanor, thank you so much for taking the time. Good morning or good afternoon. <laughs> good. It's it, You know, it's morning for me because I'm in Saskatchewan too, Eleanor. I, I don't think you're here right now, but I'm a Saskatchewanian. So, Eleanor, um, I, I understand that you have uh, visited your friend Don uh, in Portland jail. Are you still down there? I am. And and just tell us first, how is she doing? Dawn's holding up. It's it's an entirely different system, um, the U.S. jail. It, I'm a lawyer myself, and I find it hard to, to understand. I'm not down here practicing law. I'm down here supporting Dawn as a friend and a colleague. But she's holding up as well as she can. I, I got to say, um, I was telling our producer this morning that, you know, you click on one one headline and you've got or you got you click on on one news outlet you've got one headline you click on another news outlet there's a completely different headline something that has sort of bothered me about this media coverage ever since Dawn and her son were were found is that it's very much focused on the criminal element here Saskatoon police you know very quick to say that she had illegally crossed the border into the United States uh the US authorities saying that they want her detained there so that she can I I think that she could face up to 2 years in prison if if memory serves me correct but I can't help but think that there's there's a lot more that we're not talking about here so Eleanor just tell us uh because Dawn I I understand read a statement to you for you to to share with us uh what what does she want us to know well dawn has a story to tell she she has um filed like police reports she she stated that in her statement she she went to the police in saskatoon she went to the rcmp you know there's a whole piece here that i'm not going to get into because that's dawn's story to tell but yeah, there, there is way more to the story than just uh, her crossing the border with her son. Like they, she has been in uh, five years of, of prolonged legal family law proceedings, um, and you know, there there's a whole history there that has to come out. What what would you say uh, as Don's friend, Eleanor, to anybody who might be listening and thinks, you know what? we got to throw the book at this woman. People were searching for her. Police resources were used. It cost how, you know, who knows how many, how many dollars, what would your, what would your message be to to listeners who have that line of thinking? My message is that indigenous women in Canada, especially in Saskatchewan, but all over the country face marginalization, oppression. They go to the authorities with stories. They go uh, to the court with their, with their, uh, for help, uh, to the police for help, and they are not helped. So it doesn't matter your statue, your education, the amount of money that you have, you are still marginalized and oppressed and, and a lot of times ignored. So that, that's the message. You know, Dawn is not, Dawn is found. 
yes, she's found. Thank goodness. I'm so happy she's alive. We all are. But these are issues that missing and murdered Indigenous women face in Canada every day. And this is just one story. Tell us more about that, because it's not, I should I should say to anybody out there who may be a naysayer, it's obviously not just you saying this. I mean, we, we've had the the inquiry in, in, into missing and, and murdered Indigenous women and girls in Canada. We've, we've been talking about this for years, but just drill that home for us. How is it different? And I'm not I'm not talking about Dawn's situation here because I know that's this is her. That's her story to tell. But speaking more broadly so that we can create some empathy across this country. How is it different when uh, an Indigenous woman, historically speaking, goes to a police station and says, I need help versus a non-Indigenous woman going, a white woman going and, and saying the same thing? Oh, it's, we're treated like night and day. You know, we're, we're judged by the color of our skin. Uh, a lot of times we're blamed we're not believed, my, myself included in that, you know, I get followed around the store quite frequently in Saskatchewan. Mm. I am a subject of racism. As you, you must have seen the uh, the media coverage on the assault that happened in my yard on July 17th against my friend. You know, racism is so prevalent, I'm sad to say, in my province. And our mm. police, our police don't do enough to assist, you know, our Indigenous people, especially the women. When the women come forward with stories of domestic violence, with uh, with issues of, of racism, you know, that there's so much systemic racism within our system that, that oftentimes these women are ignored, forgot, or not believed. And uh, Eleanor, you just... You just... Sometime with... Sorry, go ahead. No, 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 please. Sorry, you go ahead. I was just going to say, and sometimes they are left with with no other alternative but, you know, to give up. I want you to just expand on what you touched on there, because many of the listeners to this show are not in Saskatchewan. Tell us about what happened at your house. Uh, I believe this was in North Battleford, was it? I, I wasn't aware that it was your house. Yeah, it was in it was yeah, it was my house in Battleford, Saskatchewan. So people, maybe people don't know that I'm actually lawyer for the. Bushy family. So Colton Bushy was actually shot mm. six years ago yesterday by a non-native farmer named Gerald Stanley. He was shot in the back of the head. It went to trial. He was acquitted. That was a great injustice. There was so much systemic racism and bias throughout that whole proceeding from the moment he was shot to to what happened during the trial. You know, and, and people, that there's a movie about that. There's been a lot written about that. Mm-hmm. But what happened in my yard on July 17th is... My friend was unloading a trailer that he had borrowed, and three non-native men, three white men, came into my yard and attacked him because they were looking for uh, their pants. Somebody, somebody had stole a bag with this man's pants in it, and he came in the yard. He seen the first thing. I'm assuming he seen the first indigenous person with a long braid and assumed that my friend stole his stole his stuff, and he jumped over the trailer. Sucker punched him in the face, cutting his lip, held his braid, you know, and that's, to me, a a very racial act, holding his braid to the ground and and, and, uh, continued the assault. So I think it might seem incredible to many people listening that we're talking about that, like, at the same time that we're talking about a very different issue. But when you think about 
all of these together, like something I, I always find incredible when I'm I'm talking about, especially uh, trauma in, in your community, in the in Indigenous communities in Canada, is just how many ways that these different traumas intersect. And I'm so happy, uh, grateful that you would share that story with us, Eleanor, because I think it gives people a lot more perspective. Uh, is, is there any, is there anything else that you would like to say, uh, Eleanor, we're speaking with Eleanor Sunchild, who's, who is the friend of Don Walker, who has been apprehended in the U S uh, for uh, on charges that she allegedly snuck into the U S with her, with her son from Saskatchewan. Is there anything else you'd like the people of Canada to know when they're considering uh, this case or, or any similar cases like this moving forward? Think about if your listeners are are mainly non-Indigenous, you know, you have the benefit of a white privilege. And people cringe when they hear that word. But what it means is that you have the benefit of the police believing you. You have the benefit of, of the systems, the justice system, the child protection system. All those systems were built for you. So people in those systems will believe you. However, when an Indigenous person or a person of colour comes before their the system, they're automatically assumed that they did something wrong, that, that they're to blame. And that is what white privilege is. Use your white privilege for good to try to understand what the, the history of colonization and how that translates into continued racism, including systemic racism, within our systems today. Eleanor Sunchild, I I have to end it there because we're up against the break. Thank you very much for the time. All the best. You're listening to The Evan Solomon Show. Filling in for Evan, it's Tamara Cherry on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hello, I am Tamara Cherry. Thank you for joining us. What a show it has been. Uh, Just, you know, amazing calls, amazing guests. Thanks to everybody who has taken part. Now I want to turn it over to you, this last segment. Please give me a call. If you would tip your mechanic, or how about if you were getting a sub at Subways or getting a slice of pizza at Domino's, are you tipping there? 1-855-633-1010. 1-855-633-1010. Experts are saying, experts, yes, the experts do exist on tipping. There are people that follow these things. That tip creep is a phenomenon that is leaving a bad taste for some consumers, especially when we are being hit you know, everywhere, basically in that, in that basket of commodities every month, we're hitting it at the gas station. Our grocery bills are higher. Our mortgages, the cost of living is just through the roof with sky high inflation numbers. And all through this, there is this new phenomenon that is, is seeing companies, you know, asking for a little bit more as, as customers shift away from carrying cash, it's becoming easier than ever for a business to ask for a little bit extra money. What do you think about this? 1-855-633-1010 or send me a text message at 71010. Do you tip your mechanic? What about the person who cuts your lawn? Do you feel like tipping has become more of an expectation than an option? This is something that, ah, it bugs me. It, it always bugs me when I go into a store and I'm like, I'm literally just walking up to a counter and usually I don't carry cash with me. Usually I've got my, you know, I, I use my credit card on my phone. I just tap it. 
and and we're out of there. But when I go to just pay for something that I've literally like, I just pointed and said, can you grab me one of those? And I go to pay. And then, you know, before I can pay, it asks me how much you want to tip. I'm like, am I going to be that jerk that says nothing? Or am I going to be that reasonable person that says nothing? It depends how you look at it. I mean, I, it, it, it bothers me. I'm happy to tip people who are, who have clearly, you know, been suffering because of their industry. Like for example, coming out of the pandemic, I know we're not coming out of the pandemic. We're still in the pandemic. You get what I'm saying. When all the restaurants were shut down, uh, I go into restaurants and even if I'm picking up, you know, if nobody's serving me at a table, whatever I'm picking up, I will, I will tip just me, just the same, maybe sometimes a little bit lower. Um, but I'll tip because I'm like, you know what? Life has sucked for a lot of you guys for the last couple of years. I'm willing to tip, but tipping your mechanic when you're going and, and you're thinking you're going for an oil change and you leave like with $300 less in, in your pocket, like, and now you want to tip on top of it. I just, I don't buy it. Terry and Markham, uh, do you tip your mechanics? Would you tip your mechanics? Absolutely do we have Terry and Markham not. on the line? Go ahead, Terry. We got you now. Absolutely not. I would not tip him. He's a fantastic mechanic. He's a Christian. I'm not going to tip him. I don't need to tip him. Not whatsoever. And like, like for anybody like to make a sub for me, I'm not tipping you to make me a sub. The only time I'm going to tip is when I'm in a restaurant. And 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 I'm telling you, if, if the service is crap, you you are not getting a tip. Absolutely not. Terry, would you tip if you're picking up from a restaurant, or just if you're sitting down and being served? I'm not tipping when I'm when I'm when I order something and I go to pick it up. Why would I do that? I, I, I I'm the one going going to to um, to pick it up myself. No, <laughs> but what if I have somebody bring it to me? I'm definitely going to tip them. No nonsense, Terry and Markham. Thanks for your call, Tony. Calling from Ottawa. How do you feel about this new phenomenon of tip creep? Um. Well, I, I, I work in a, in a, in a job where uh, I accept tips. I'm a medical courier. So when I do private okay. deliveries, I accept, I accept tips. And I believe uh, in, in tipping and, pay, and paying it forward. And I'm, I'm, I, I have friends that tell me I'm a prolific tipper. I just believe in it. And uh, do I tip my mechanic? Yes, I do. I am a okay. private mechanic who's very, very busy. And he's, he's got a lot of customers. And his gate rate is fantastic. It's not it's not like a um, a dealership. So if he does great work on on my car, which he does, I rely on my vehicle for my job. I I tip. I show I show my appreciation by tipping. You know what? Does he have a tip option when you go to to tap your credit card, or do you carry cash in your pocket, Tony? I ca- I carry. Uh, well, I do both. I I have uh, you know I I always have some change in in, in the smaller bills. And uh, yeah, I just I just believe in it. Uh, even the servers at a, a fast food place, at a Tim Hortons, if they're doing a good job, they go the extra distance. Distance, why not? It's it's not Love a good. It. It's pay, not, it's pay not, it you know, it's not big money. I'm not I'm not a, a a wealthy person by any stretch of the imagination. But if they do a great job, uh, I give them something extra. All right, Tony in Ottawa. Thanks for your call, Mike. You're calling from Cambridge, Ontario. How do you feel about tip creep? Yeah, I, I've noticed it. Uh, you know, you go to a Tandoori Express and they turn the, the terminal around and it says 15, 20 or 25% for pickup. I'm like, oh, there's not even a seat in the place, right? It's just unusual to me. I mean, am I going to start tipping the guy at Max Milk? I mean, have I? Sure, I've some change behind before. 
you know, it, it, I, I think like I tip construction guys, tradespeople, like, uh, gosh, I mean, I'm kind of crazy. But construction whole, guys? Uh, like construction guys working on your house? Yeah, for sure. I, I buy them lunch every day and I tip them 50 bucks on Friday, and the last Friday I give them $100 each one of them. Look at and that you! Ex- that extra, well, the extra nail goes in where it needs to go. You know, like uh, these guys make <laughs> exactly. good money, but it's hard work, and I appreciate it. So I think that appreciation's good. But I'm not going to yeah. start tipping everybody that has their hand out. Uh, you know, f- for a lackluster effort. I mean, how many times you walk into the bank, they're going to start getting tipped now too. Yeah, well, maybe. Maybe you'll start seeing those tip jars there. Uh, okay, let's. Yeah. we've got a lot of people okay. in line here. Thank and, Andrew and, thanks, Mike. Andrew and Scarborough, really quickly, how do you feel about this? Uh, mechanics and so on, I would not tip. I will, I will not tip uh, because we're going to way where soon, like the previous caller is saying, uh, we're going to be tipping anywhere we go. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Even like a, a takeout place, you're doing all the work. You're picking it up yourself. You're not using any of the services. Uh, why should we be tipping like the person at the counter? It just doesn't uh, make a lot of sense to me. So some people may argue if you're picking up the food from the restaurant, the tip is also being dispersed to the people working out back, just as it is when there's a waiter actually coming to your table. Really quick, Mike in Rexdale, how do you feel about tipping? Mike in Toronto, Rexdale in Toronto, go ahead. I tip everybody. The guy that got my keys out of my car from CAA, I gave him a tip two days ago. I tip my oil guy. I tip my dog walker. The kid that fixes my bike, I tip everybody. You know why? You get taken care of. You take care of them, you get taken care of back. I get brought in first in line sometimes on the oil change because I tip them. You take care of people, they take care of you. Mike, I love it. Donna, we've got like 30 seconds. You're calling from Montreal. Uh, yes, I tip everybody except if I do a pickup for takeout. My mechanic, I definitely do. Hairdresser, even if she owns a salon, she's got overhead supplies to buy. At Christmas time, if I'm not seeing my mechanic, I put a card in the mail with some gift cards for him and his mechanics. If you treat people nice, then they'll treat you nice. And it's not a bribe. It's a way of saying I thank you and I appreciate you. I love it, Donna. And I bet that you and Mike in Rexdale in Toronto, I bet that you guys are also the people to put out like a bottle of wine or something for the people to come and pick up your garbage at Christmas time. Thank you very much for all of these calls. And thanks for Tony taking all those calls uh, back at the station in Toronto. Uh, thanks to Sam, our producer, who put this wonderful show together. And of course, thanks for Chris, our, our technical producer, who is just, you know, just so on top of things, throwing the clips, all that stuff, taking the calls, getting people connected to Zoom. I'm Tamara Cherry filling in for Evan Solomon this week. I will be back for one more show tomorrow. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks for listening and have a wonderful day.